As Brandon comes up this morning to, uh, to, to give us the word from Genesis 6, I'm going to read an excerpt of that passage. This passage, hear the word of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and, and cover it in, inside and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I've made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth and the waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah and all that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. The ark came to rest on the Mount of Ararat. Noah sent forth a dove, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, that they may swarm on the earth and may be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like all of us, Noah was a sinner uh, who deserved death, but you declared him righteous. You didn't have to save him, Father, but you chose to. And because of Jesus, that same love and forgiveness extends to us. On the cross, you dealt with Jesus according to our sins. 
and punished him according to our iniquities. And because the gospel is true, you now deal with us according to his righteousness and reward us according to his obedience. What an incredible exchange, Father. What a salvation and what a father you are to us. Jesus attained our sin, and yet we attained his righteousness. By you, all things have been made, and nothing exists apart from you. Everything comes from you, our first heartbeat and our last breath. You sustain all things by the power of your word and will restore all things by the glory of your return. You, Father, are the only one who loves us with a filial affection, endless kindness, and inexhaustible grace. And as we continue in worship this morning, remind us of these truths, Father, that regardless of circumstance, may we be a people who find deep rest in you. And may we be a people who can claim boldly, it is well with our soul. Father, be with Brandon this morning as he brings the word. Illuminate your words in the midst of his, Father. I speak to our hearts. We love you. We promise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Have you ever bought furniture from Ikea? Uh, 30 years ago, my then future wife, Alicia, she moved out of her parents' house and she furnished her entire apartment uh, with Ikea furniture. And, you know, they used to make some pretty good quality stuff. We still have some of that furniture even 30 years later. Um, But the thing about Ikea is you have to assemble it all yourself. And so uh, that weekend, I must have spent 20 or 30 hours just putting together uh, various pieces of furniture, you know, using that little tiny Allen wrench. And um, it mostly went okay, uh, except uh, there was one piece of furniture was a entertainment center for the living room. And uh, I spent a couple hours trying to put it together and uh, just one of the boards wasn't working right. And no matter which way I turned it or tried to make it fit or looked at it, I, it just, it, it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And I, I realized that it was defective. It was like corrupting the whole project. And so um, I finally just had to give up. And what that meant was I'd take the whole thing apart and then try to fit it all into Alicia's Mustang, and then drive like the hour and 20 minutes to the nearest Ikea to uh, return it. You know, because sometimes you just have to scrap everything and start anew. Well, I wonder if God didn't kind of experience something similar, you know, on a much grander scale, of course. But, you know, in those days of Noah, when, when he looked out across all of his creation and he saw that it had been corrupted. You know, it didn't look like he had designed it to. It didn't work like he had designed it. And, and so there was really nothing to do except scrap it and start over. Now, this morning, we're continuing through our series in the book of Genesis, and we're, we're looking at this story of Noah's Ark. I think most of us are pretty familiar with that story, and yet I, I hope you'll listen with uh, fresh ears and see if maybe God doesn't have something new to reveal to us. For those of you who take notes, my outline is really simple. I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, two things that the story of Noah is not, and then I'll talk about two things that the story of Noah is. So the first one is the story of Noah's Ark is not a fairy tale. 
Now, I'm willing to bet that uh, some of you probably spent the first year or so of your life in a nursery that had been decorated with images from the story of Noah's Ark. You know, maybe there was a, a mural on the wall with, a, you know, with the big wooden boat and the path, and there's the two animals of every kind making their way orderly into the door of the ark. Uh, I've seen so many nurseries and playrooms and uh, you know, kids' classrooms that are decorated in this way. They're always really cute, and there are you know, lots of stuffed animals around. It, they're great. You want to know what I've never seen? What I've never seen is a nursery uh, decorated with images of thousands of terrified people clawing at the door of the ark as the waters began to rise. So no one paints a mural of of the ark out on the water uh, surrounded by the floating remains of dead people and animals. You know, this was... This was maybe the darkest day in the history of mankind. You know, when Moses and God were, were sitting down and writing about it, I, I doubt they were, they were talking about how cute it all was as they wrote it down. And yet it seems sometimes that the biggest takeaway we have from this story is how to decorate children's rooms. Now, I know we've had a lot of babies in the church lately, and you know, if you're in the middle of painting your Noah mural, I'm so sorry. Don't go home and change it. Um, it's going to be great, and I think that the the baby is going to benefit from it. It it's a good reminder of God's faithfulness and His sovereignty. But I, I do think that. Uh, when we take these kind of stories apart, whether it's for a children's storybook Bible or you know, for decorating purposes or whatever, if we only focus on the, the cute parts and the rainbows, I think that we're kind of missing the point. I think about Disney films. Disney likes to take uh, classic fairy tale literature and, and make movies out of them. Um, but if you actually read those stories, uh, they quite often have a dark and tragic ending. And Disney, you know, those aren't going to sell, so they like to make them cute and happy and give everyone a happily ever after, right? They're good movies, but they lose something meaningful from the literature that they're based on. And we have to keep in mind that, that this story of Noah is a factual account of actual events. So the book of Genesis is not a collection of myths, and it does not particularly use symbolic imagery to portray what we could not otherwise understand. It's a careful and precise recounting of what really happened. And God told Moses what happened, and he wrote it down because God feels that it is important that we remember it properly. Now, there's non-believing experts out there, and they try to convince us that this is a fictional story, that it has been copied from other ancient flood myths. I think it's I think it's interesting that there are so many ancient flood myths out there, right? That uh, in a time where there was no internet and no printing press, uh, so many people came up with the same ideas. 
The experts say that they heard each other's stories and they borrowed from each other's stories and, and that's why everyone has a flood narrative. But I think about it and I think, you know, if there really was a worldwide cataclysmic flood, and I, I believe there was, then I think Noah would probably have told uh, his, his grandchildren about it. And I believe his grandchildren would have told their children and their children would have told his great-grandchildren and so on and so on. Everyone would have heard of this story of what God had done. In fact, Moses almost certainly had heard some version of the flood story as he grew up in Pharaoh's house in Egypt. And I, I imagine that when he was writing the book of Genesis, I imagine God sitting him down and saying, look, I know you've heard a lot of stories about that flood, but guess what? I was there, and I can tell you firsthand what really happened, and I can tell you why it was important. We know from the New Testament that they believed in the flood narrative. The writer of Hebrews believed the account of Noah, referred to it as fact, and Jesus himself refers to the story as if it really happened. In fact, he uses it as a warning about the end times. You know, with we have creation and the, the parting of the Red Sea and the fall of the city of Jericho. There's all these amazing stories in the Bible. And just like those, this is not just a story. It's not allegory. It's a narrative account of our history. And so this isn't a story about a floating zoo or that one time that Noah and his family went on that amazing cruise. It's a cautionary tale about the destructiveness of sin and its devastating effect on the world around us. And it's a sobering reminder that, in the words of Alan P. Ross, it is the prerogative and the will of the holy God to purge the world of evil. See, we know that God cannot abide by evil but, but I think that sometimes we hear the story of the flood, right? And, and what do we think on the inside? We're like, yeah, I don't know, God, maybe, maybe you're overreacting just a little bit. Like killing every living thing that has breath. Like, isn't that just a little bit too much? But I think that those kind of questions, they say something about us. They show that maybe we're in just a tiny bit of denial about how bad our sin truly is. The text tells us that God saw that mankind had corrupted the earth. Now think about that for just a minute. This is, this is Genesis 6. What a grievous change from just a few chapters before when God saw that all he had created was good. God not only saw that everything was corrupted, but he saw that the, the cause was because mankind had corrupted itself. Those that he made in his own image were the culprits. They were the ones who were destroying everything. And we're not talking about a small amount of sin. It's, it's not like mankind was just making a couple of bad life choices. See, we're told that the earth was filled with violence. 
The word for violence in Hebrew is Hamas. You think of the terrorist organization that embodies that today. Imagine a world in which everyone around you is ready and willing to inflict physical harm to get their way. All of their intentions were to destroy the good things that God had created. The text says in in 6.12, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God says in verse 13, I will destroy them with the earth. The the word corrupted and the word destroyed, they both come from the, the same root word in the Hebrew. It's shehet. And, and God does this kind of play on words there. He says, they shehet the earth, and so I will shehet them with the earth. See, God's response is not only a just outpouring of his wrath, it is a perfectly proportional response. In other words, their sin was so great that they got exactly what they deserved. That was as bad as it gets. So right now, you're probably thinking, thank God we aren't like that. Our sin is bad, but at least we're not like those folks in the days of Noah. Otherwise, we'd probably deserve that same outpouring of God's wrath. Well, I've got some bad news for you guys. Our sin nature when it's left unrestrained, it's just as bad as it gets. And we're just as deserving of God's wrath. This is what the Bible says about our sin nature. In Romans 1.18, it says what God thinks of our sinfulness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In verse 29, the Apostle Paul, he goes on to describe what we are like in our sin nature. We're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. We're disobedient to our parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though we know that it is God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, even though we know that, we not only do them, but we give approval to those who practice them. That is us in our sin nature. So the bad news is we don't live in a fairy tale. Our sin is very real, and it is very destructive, and not only to ourselves, but to the whole world around us. Remember the chart that Pastor Ryan showed us last week, right? It, uh, it shows us that, that having an awareness of our sinfulness, of the destructiveness of our sin nature, having an awareness of that is key to seeing the power of Christ's work on the cross magnified in our lives. That's why the story of Noah is in the Bible. So let me ask you this. Do you see the wickedness of your own heart? Can 
Can you read the words of Romans 1 and admit that it is describing you in your sin nature? Are you able to confess that absent the work of the Holy Spirit, your every intention would be only and ever evil? My challenge to you this week is spend some time in Romans 1. Like, do it in a way to develop a healthy awareness of just how bad sin truly is. Because this story is not a fairy tale. It's also not a fable. Now, a fable is a a short story that usually has animals as characters, and it teaches us a moral. And our our story is short, and it does have animals in it. Uh, But I don't think that it was written really to convey to us a moral or At least, I don't think that it's the moral that we would normally associate with this story. And let me explain what I mean. In verse 6-9, Noah is described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that he walked with God. And we're told that God saw Noah's righteousness. And so if we're not careful, when we look at this, we're going to fall into a morality trap. See, we might start to believe that the moral of our story is be good and God will show you mercy. And at first glance, that does appear to be the story, right? Like everyone is bad except for Noah and his family. And then God comes along and punishes all the bad people and he saves all the good people. But that is not the story of Noah. And if that's the lesson that we walk away with, we're going to be sorry later on. Now, it is true that Noah and his family found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but it is not true that he earned that favor by being righteous and blameless. See, Noah was a human like you and I, and he struggled with his sinful flesh just like you and I struggle and just like all the wicked people of his generation. Noah was a no good, dirty, rotten sinner, just like you, just like me. And we'll see an example of Noah's sin later on in this series. Um, but for now, it's enough that we just know that he wasn't perfect and, and uh, remember that Scripture isn't saying that. But if he sinned, how can Scripture say that he was righteous and blameless? Well, we have to keep in mind a biblical understanding of righteousness. Hebrews 11.7 tells us uh, that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He inherited his righteousness. He didn't earn it. And it came to him not through his effort, but by faith. See, his blamelessness was a work of the Holy Spirit within him. And if not for the amazing grace of God, he would have been just as corrupt as the very worst of his neighbors. Let's go back to Romans 1 for a second and take a closer look at verse 17. It says, for in it, it being the gospel... For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, 
you'll probably see that there's a footnote on the last bit of that verse. And that footnote explains that what is meant by the righteous shall live by faith is the one who by faith is righteous shall live. See, it's not a command, it's an observation. Life comes to those who are righteous, not in their own good works, but by faith. And this is so important because we have to remember that that Noah and other believers in the Old Testament days, they were not saved through different means than we are. Noah's righteousness, his being made right with God, it came through faith. God called him and Noah walked with God. The righteousness of the coming Messiah, Jesus, was imputed to him just as it is you and I. Now, Noah had never heard of Jesus. It's possible that, that he knew about the promise that God gave to Eve that her, her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. But regardless of his understanding of how salvation came to be, the spiritual reality remains that he was saved by the same grace that God extends to people today. Noah could not live that perfect sinless life any more than you and I can, and he was in need of a savior every bit as much as you and I are, and his salvation came through faith alone, not works, just like us. But what we do see in this passage is that Noah was remarkably obedient to God's commands. What we have to remember is that his ability to obey was because of his faith, not the other way around. He was that new creation that we read about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He was no longer regarded according to the flesh, and he was given the righteousness of Christ so that he could live in new obedience. So the moral of the story is not to be good so God will show us favor. The truth we have to take away from this is that because God has shown us favor, we should be obedient to his commands. So do you have this the right way around? Or are you, are you still trying to earn God's favor by being good enough? Because that's a losing battle. You'll find that you're just treading water and eventually you're going to get tired and you're going to drown along with all the other sinners. And the key is recognizing that righteousness comes from Jesus alone, by faith. And when we understand that, we find life. My challenge to you this week as you're spending time in Romans 1, why not memorize Romans 1.17? Memorize it with that footnoted version so that it, it becomes crystal clear for you. And then next week, find Miss Kelly. And if you can recite the verse, she'll give you a prize from New City Kids. I didn't tell her that, but I bet you she'd do it. The story of Noah is not a fairy tale or a fable, so what is it? Well, the story of Noah's Ark is a promise of life. We have no clearer example in Scripture of the great value we have in being obedient than the story of Noah. We know that he didn't always obey God, but we're told that when he was commanded to build the ark, he did what he was told. And because of his obedience, he and his family lived. 
Think about it. Noah probably wasn't a master shipmaker. It's possible he had never even seen a boat, and he had certainly never seen one the size of the ark. God gave him some very, very specific instructions. What, what, if, he had, what if he had given in to the temptation to just kind of cut some corners, right? God gave him these instructions for a reason. If he hadn't obeyed the command to cover the ark in pitch inside and out, it would have leaked. It would have sank. What if he didn't make it to the proper dimensions? Then, then the giraffe's heads would have had to poke out the top, like in all those drawings, right? What if he just refused to build it at all or quit when it got hard? Then he and his family, they would have perished. I suspect that during the long, arduous work of constructing an ark, Noah had more than a few moments of doubts or temptations to quit or cut corners. He probably had his own ideas about better solutions than God's plan. I was thinking about it this week. I thought, you know, Noah probably didn't even know how many different kinds of animals there were. You know, we still discover new species of animals all the time. I bet he had all these questions, and then when, the, when these animals started showing up, he's like, oh, that's why that room is that way, or that's why that room is that small. It all began to make sense, because, see, that's kind of how it is with God, right? He rarely, if ever, reveals his plans to us beforehand. But we always have that choice. Obey and live, or disobey and be on the path to death. God's commands are always for our benefit and serve to bring us life. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And Proverbs 19, 16 says, whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises his ways will die. God told Moses the story of Noah because he wanted his people to see an example of how obedience to his call will lead them to life when things get difficult. None of us are likely to ever be faced with the monumental, daunting task of building an ark. And yet all of us will have moments when God calls us to do something that we're not certain about. When I was younger in life, my life plan was to write a novel and get rich and retire somewhere where it never, ever gets hot. But as they say, if you want to hear God laugh, just tell him your plans. God's plan for me led me on a journey into nonprofit ministry in the hottest, most humid place that I have ever lived. And before you start feeling too sorry for me, let me tell you where I have wound up is better than anything that I could have imagined for myself. Maybe I will write a book one day, but I found that being in God's will, even when it's not going perfectly, right? Even when all of our plans as a church get confused and muddled because of a global pandemic, even then I find that where God wants me is where I find life. It's life-giving. Jesus said this, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. We see that our obedience is not about avoiding judgment. Only Jesus' perfect obedience, including his death on a cross, can accomplish that. He is our Savior, but he is also our Lord. And when we accept him as our Savior and Lord, this means that we not only avoid God's wrath at judgment and thus have eternal life, but we get to experience the abundant life now as we are obedient to his commandments. You know, I've worked with a lot of addicts over the years. I've counseled and sponsored many men with a variety of addictions, but I have to say that my favorites are almost always the chemical addicts, the alcoholics and the drug users. And this is because they understood that obedience that staying sober was a matter of life or death. See, the sex and porn addicts and the overeaters, the codependents, the same-sex attraction people, they, they find it harder to embrace the devastating nature of their sin. Falling off a wagon was not such a big deal. But you talk to an alcoholic, and they'll tell you, if I ever drink again it's likely it'll be my last one. See, it's easier to be obedient when we understand that it's about life and death. And this may seem more obvious in extreme cases such as addiction, but it's, it's actually true for all of us. Our sin is way more destructive and deadly than we think. And the only path to life is obedience to what God is calling us to like Jonah. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. And death was all around him until he finally gave in and obeyed. And so because of this, I know that I'd be miserable right now if I was in Montana trying to put words on a page. So let me ask you a question. Do you have an ark? Is, is there something that God is calling you to do in faith? Maybe start a business or change careers, or get into a group, a small group, a missional community. Maybe get married, or have another kid, or adopt a kid, or volunteer for New City Kids. Write a book. Maybe you should cancel Netflix and Twitter. Maybe you should run for office. I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're resisting God, or if you're already obediently following the call, or maybe you haven't given it any prayer or thought at all. My challenge to you is the same. Find someone that you trust and start a conversation about what you think God might be calling you to, and ask them to pray for you and hold you accountable to finding life through faithful obedience. The last observation I have is that the, the story of Noah's Ark is a warning. It's a dire warning that God is not going to allow the sinfulness of man to corrupt the earth forever. 
And it is a reminder that through his covenant of grace, those who are righteous through faith will sail through the coming judgment and live for eternity. God has promised us he will never again kill all of his creation by a flood, but there is a final judgment that's coming. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, and so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There's a couple of things I want to take note of here. First, Jesus is really, really clear that no one knows when the end is coming. So he says even he doesn't know, only the Father. So if there is some guy on TV telling you that he knows when Jesus is coming back, or if somebody has written a book where they've analyzed dates and whatnot, and are making some kind of a prediction, you can, you can take to the bank that they're wrong. Secondly, this verse has kind of been used as a basis for the notion that there's going to be a rapture of all the believers when Jesus comes back, that they will be taken away and all the sinners will be left behind. But pay closer attention. Jesus says that this will be like in the days of Noah, when all the wicked were taken away and the believers were the ones left behind. See, this is what Jesus is talking about when he gave that parable of the wheat and the tares. There is going to be a sorting of people on the day of judgment. The believers will be gathered to Jesus and the non-believers will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. It will happen just that quickly. And we have no reason to expect that there's going to be a several-year period for those who are undecided to finally make a decision to believe. Please don't wait for that day. Because at that point, just like those who found themselves outside of the ark when the waters began to rise, it will be too late. If you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, I, I would say heed the words of Jesus and stay awake. The mission is critical. We're told in Romans 10, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear about someone without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? The warning is for us. We need to be about the business of seeing the gospel go forth because the time is short. If you don't yet consider yourself a follower of Jesus, um, I would urge you, please, don't delay in giving it your full consideration. 
Don't wait to be made right with God thinking that you've got plenty of time. But even if it takes another thousand years before Jesus returns, I, I would urge you to make knowing him and following him a priority anyway. Because after all, that's where we find life. On the day of judgment, yeah. But also every single day until then. If you're at that place where you're considering it, I I hope that you'll come find me after this gathering. I'd love to pray with you and talk to you. But for now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Noah and his ark. I thank you for your faithfulness in in, uh, keeping uh, the human race alive. I thank you for your great covenant with Noah that we'll learn about next week. I thank you that you are our God and we are your people. I pray that uh, we would be those who stay awake and stay diligent to what you have called us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.